awesome uh, to be sharing with you guys. And we've been doing a series called Trusting God. Uh, just, I guess, a little advance warning. Um, I don't always shave my head, so just so you know, I shaved my head because it was shaved for a cure at the school. I also waxed my legs. Well, hindsight, don't let kids do it because when it got two minutes before the bell, they were just putting on wax strips and ripping them off. And it, whew, they were trying to see if they could get me to swear. Uh, luckily, I passed, but it was close because it hurt. Uh, so I know I look a bit different, so it's not a midlife crisis or anything like that. Uh, I don't know if I'm old enough for a midlife crisis. Can you have them at 33? Can you? Yeah, you can have them anytime, right? Yeah. But it's not one of those. But it is awesome to be with you guys, and it's awesome to be doing this series uh, about trusting God. And we've kind of looked at different things throughout the series. And I want to encourage you to even go back and listen to some of those messages. Uh, today, we're looking at trusting God in an age of skepticism. So I think I spelled that right. You guys spell it different than I normally do. Uh, we put a K in America because we're more correct. So North America, if you ever want to know. Uh, USA and Canada, it's SK. And then the rest is the same. You guys put a C. You know, but yeah, it's tomato, tomato. Uh, but we're looking at trusting in an age of skepticism, right? We're all skeptics. And we all seem to be trapped in it. And I feel like we're skeptic of everything. We're skeptic of the news. We're skeptic of journalists. We're skeptic of friends, of neighbors. I mean, there was a time where kids used to, I know when even I was a kid, I used to ride around on my bike in the neighborhood. My dad would just let me go. And I'd see where all the bikes were piled up. Oh, that's where my mates are. I'll go crash in there and see what's going on. Nowadays, kids probably don't get that same freedom, do they? Because there's a lot of skepticism, there's a lot of concerns out there. And some of them are valid, but to, to start things off, I want to look at the definition of skepticism, which is a noun. Uh, in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, it gives us three definitions. And the first one it says is an attitude of doubt or disposition to incredulously, either in general or towards a particular object. The second one is more a philosophical term. It's the doctrine that true knowledge or knowledge in particular area is unclear. So the philosophy of skepticism is that there's not really any true knowledge. But that's more a philosophical term. And then the last one they give us is doubt concerning basic religious principles, such as immortality, providence, and revelation. So those are our three definitions that we will kind of have for skepticism. For me, the first and last one really stick out. And it gets me thinking how often does our whole world, including us, have an attitude of doubtful skepticism towards everything. You know, it makes, uh, sorry, went too far. It makes me honestly think of a time uh, when I was an early Christian. And uh, I went away on a mission trip. It was really cool. Uh, sitting there, there was a guy who had a stroke a couple years ago, hadn't walked. We were in this village in Honduras. 
I felt to pray. The pastor was like, yeah, let's go pray. I thought he would. He got me to go pray. And I was like, all right, cool. I'll pray for this guy. Uh, Prayed. I was, you know, all into acts at that point. So if you read about Peter, man, he just told people to get up and they got up. So I'm expecting like this, he's going to like leap out and Jesus is just going to move here. And nothing happened. Bit of a bummer. Bit of a buzzkill. Maybe I got this wrong. Uh, The translator goes, oh, no, let's try to help him up. We helped this guy walk to and from the room. So God did show up, but it was just a little bit different. Right? So I had that experience, and then I come back home. At the same time, I'm dealing with my dad having cancer. And I think around the time I got back uh, from this mission trip, was when my dad's cancer story was kind of taking a turn. So it was thyroid cancer that they discovered, and they almost killed him when they messed up a surgery. But I guess one of the pros is they found this cancer little mass, so they cut that out. Uh, But it was thyroid cancer, which if you Google, if you want any kind of the cancers, your thyroid one, that's a pretty safe bet. The survival rate's pretty good, uh, unless it spreads. And when I came back from this trip, we just had a... My dad had a doctor's appointment where he found out it had spread uh, to his liver and spleen. And I remember I was kind of caught in this skepticism of who God was, right? I started looking back at the healing that I saw that happened, started questioning if that was really a healing. You know, did we just force that guy to walk across the room? Like, I haven't gone back to check on him. We didn't go back the next day. I started being skeptic on who God was. God said that he loved me when I, you know, felt that warmth and I decided to do the Jesus thing. He said he had it under control, but now my dad's survival rate just went from like 80% to like 30%. Like what, what's going on here? I was a very, I was becoming very skeptical. And I started at that point getting a little bit trapped in permanent doubtful skepticism. And I think we all can get trapped in this, so it's not as permanent. We can sometimes move our way out of, have you ever met people that are just permanent, doubtful skeptics in everything? They're like a buzzkill, right? You talk to them about anything, they pick it apart. Heck, they get given money and they pick it apart because they're not really given money. Like, they're just permanently skeptic about everything. And it just sucks the joy out of so many situations. And as I'm sitting uh, back nowadays and looking around, I guess I'm seeing that more and more of us, even as Christians, are getting caught up and trapped in this permanent, doubtful skepticism. We're just becoming more and more skeptics. Skeptics of who God is, skeptics of how God operates in the world, skeptics of, you know, what's happening I mean, there's so many of us within uh, Christendom that don't even try to be change in the world, right? We build our own Christian communities. We'll build our churches. We'll make our own movie industries. We'll make our own music industries. And we'll just shiloh ourselves. Because we're doubtful that any good's ever going to happen in the world, that any change is going to happen. So I guess how do we avoid the trap of permanent doubtful skepticism? How do we avoid this? How do we make sure we don't get stuck here? Because it's all right to be skeptical sometimes. So please hear me. If you're not skeptic on things, I don't think you're being human. Uh, I think it's like human nature to be skeptics. (laughs) 
But we can't get stuck there, right? We can't get trapped where we're just picking apart everything because we've all met those people. And I believe there's a difference. There's a difference between people who are skeptic of some things and there's people that are just trapped in this permanent doubtful skepticism and they just pick apart everything. So there's a difference there. So how do we avoid going down that path? Now, I believe uh, we discover something in the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 in John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. And I want to look at this story today with y'all. I want to point out uh, that this story is told differently. If you read this one, it's, it's one that, that mentions a little boy in his lunch. It's just a little bit different than how we found it in other Gospels. But I really love this story. I think it's got a lot for us, so I just want to read that and dive into that today. And this is how it starts off. This is from the NRSV version. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the sign that he was, signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for these people? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Now I want to pause here because I love in this busy moment what Jesus does, right? Because we read that it's time for Passover. So if you don't know, Passover is a pretty big deal in the Jewish calendar, right? To me, I kind of like to think of it like Christmas for us, right? It's a busy time. It's a time you're, you know, going to the shops, you're loading up on turkey and ham and all the food that you can to make a big feast that no one's ever going to eat all of. And, you know, you just try to save it and give it to neighbors. But you're busy. You're picking presents. Like everyone's out and about. You have Jesus out and about doing his ministry as well. You even have him trying to sit down on a mountaintop with his disciples, and it's like people still follow him. So Jesus was trying to get away, but this this busy moment going on, right? He can't get a breath. It's a busy season. There's just so much busyness, and I love how he kind of tests Philip and tests all his disciples. I mean, Philip gets a bad rep because I think, you know, He's the one he was talking to, but I think everyone was there, right? Everyone could have spoke up. But I love how he's testing him in this busy moment. Let's keep reading to see how Philip answers him. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they among so many people? I love these two different kind of skeptic responses. All right, you kind of have a skeptic closed response. And I believe that's Philip kind of looking at the logical like, yo, man, what are you talking about? Like, food's dear at the moment. It's almost gone. Like, we don't even have enough money. Everyone's charging more because, you know, it's... Passover, so, you know, they're trying to get good on their money. How are we going to do this? There's no way. And he's got this closed-off response, right? But then you have Andrew who kind of 
doesn't completely have it closed off, like it's halfway open. Like it's a little bit open, right? It's, oh, there's this little boy, you know, who's got some fish and bread, but, you know, and really, how is that going to work for so many people? I love these two responses, because neither one of them would fill you with a lot of confidence, right? Because Philip is just straight up not, ain't going to happen. Like, I don't know what you're on, Jesus. We, we ain't going to be able to pull this off. I know you've done some cool stuff, but come on, this ain't going to happen. You have Andrew who's kind of like, well, you know, there is this boy with fish, but you know, really, come on. So they're both doubting. I want to keep reading to see what Jesus said. Jesus said, make the people sit down. Kind of like that, how he doesn't get into it with them. He just tells them, make the people sit down. Now, there was a great deal of grass in the place. So they sat down, about 5,000 in all. So when we read 5,000 in all, that's just the men. They didn't count the women and the children. So that was probably a lot more than 5,000 sitting in this massive grass area. And this is what we, then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed, blah, distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. Man. When they were satisfied, right, and I want to pause there. These is people, you know, it, was anyone outside yesterday at lunchtime? It was a hot day. I was watching my kids play soccer. It was way too hot. Like, way too hot. And I'm just imagining a scene like that, right? A hot day, and you get food out. Man, have you ever seen people eat when it's a hot day, and they're hungry and thirsty, and they just devour? Like, I feel like yesterday, someone could have put a whole turkey in front of me, cooked, and I probably would have devoured it in, like, 10 minutes. And be like, get me another. So you have them on this hot day, eating till they were satisfied. Till they sit back and they go, oh, I can't eat anymore. I mean, that's big. I'm American. We, we fight that with everything. You know, we want to make a happy play every time. But you have them eat until they're satisfied. How incredible is that? He told his disciples, gather up the fragments left over so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled 12 baskets. Gosh, I love this miracle. I love how amazing it is. But I find something funny. If you ever study a little bit of theology, you'll define there's some theological debate about the miracle, about what the miracle was. There are brilliant scholars, and I think uh, who, who will argue different things. Uh, but I remember one time I was sitting at a facilitation and uh, these two people, we were having lunch, were getting, like, angry about it. Both were. Uh, but one was of the assumption, all right, you know, Jesus fed the 5,000 or more than 5,000, but it's because he miraculously made the little boy's lunch multiply again and again and again, which is incredible. Now, the person on the other side, yeah, that sounds beautiful, but what if, and his opinion was, what if there's so many people there? It's a busy time. Maybe there was other people who had food but didn't want to share it. And you, ha you had this little boy share his food. 
and everyone sees it, and they see Jesus pray for it, and then they're moved by that heart compassion, and they have a heart transformation, and they all start emptying out their pockets. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, they're both cool, in my opinion. Like, have you been to America around Thanksgiving? People don't share food. I know it might look that way because we do big meals, but Steve can tell you, if you're not invited to that meal, you're not getting food. So I'm just thinking it's Thanksgiving time, and somehow someone talks someone in to, like, share their food, which Steve chuckling over there knows would be the biggest miracle ever to strangers. So even that's miraculous, right? Yeah, yeah, you don't share. No, no. You throw it out two weeks later. Oh, that's bad now. Or even Jesus multiplying it. That's awesome to me. They're both awesome. And either way, it's an amazing miracle. Hands down. So I remember I was sitting there just kind of, this is a little bit stupid. I don't know, forgive me, please. But I was like, why don't you just stop arguing? Who cares? Either way, it's an amazing miracle. Jesus either multiplied bread multiple times, which, given his track record, he's fully capable of. I mean, the guy raised people from the dead. I have no doubt he could multiply a little boy's lunch if he wanted to. But if it's the other way, and, you know, he changed these people's hearts who were all greedy, oh, my goodness, that's equally amazing. Have you met greedy people? Like, imagine going to Kohl's and everyone deciding to share groceries. Like, whoa. Like, that's what we're talking about. That's, I don't care which one it is. Who cares? Jesus did a miracle. But you had two people getting angry and being skeptical about the way that miracle had to look, and there was lots of anger rising up. Let's keep reading to see how this ends. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. When Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Wow. I love this miracle. It's one of the few you read about afterwards. They're wanting to make him king by force. Like, I, I mean, I love Jesus, but I don't know if I would have had the strength to sneak away. Would anyone else? If God used you to do a miracle and then you have all these people about to take you by force to make you king, I mean, being king sounds pretty cool, right? Uh, probably a lot of money in it, nice place to stay, people have to listen to me. That'd be pretty good. But what does Jesus do? He withdraws to the mountain. And this miracle just blows me away because of the timing of it. Because, you know, we say there's 5,000. There's probably more like ten or 15,000 people there that all have enough, which is just incredible to me. It's also incredible Jesus is calm the whole time. We don't see Jesus getting stressed out once. Not when he tries to go away with his disciples, probably you know, I would, I can't say what Jesus was thinking, but I'd like to think he might have had a thought like, hey, it's getting close to dinner time. Uh, come on, disciples, come on, let, let's, let's separate. Let's spend some time and go over stuff and have a good meal. But you have all the people follow him, and he doesn't stress. He doesn't stress when his two disciples both doubt. Both of them are full of doubt, and he doesn't stress about it. He just says, 
Tell them to sit. And I think this story kind of shows us the danger of doubtful skepticism, which to me leads to inaction or half-action. Because I think that's what you see by the disciples in this story, if we're honest. You have Philip doing no action. You know, he's a doubtful skeptic. There's no way. Jesus could never. You can't. Come on. Come on. This is too far, God. You can't do this. There's no way it's going to happen. That's, that's Philip. You know, look at the logic of it. Look how much money. And look at how are we going to get to town. And this isn't going to work. And you have Andrew kind of doing half action. Right, because we like to build up Andrew like he was so brave, but really he just kind of said, hey, there's a little boy who's got a, got a lunch, you know, but like, really, is that going to be enough? So he does half action. And I think when we're caught up in this doubtful skepticism and we're trapped in it, we either do one of these two things. We either do inaction or it's half action. And I think we need to realize the power in the, in, sorry, I should have took out the, sorry, Verna, I had one spelling mistake this time, one grammar thing. I'm doing good, right? I think it's only one so far, so I'm getting better, guys. But we need to realize the power in embracing skepticism like the little boy with his lunch, because that's the true hero of the story to me. Because if we're honest, this little boy is the one who saves the day. This little boy must have had enough confidence within himself to be like, no, this is Jesus who's walked on water, who's raised the dead, who's done all these things. I have no idea how my lunch is going to help, but you know what? Here you go, have it. He was the one who must have tracked down Andrew, because if you think in this time, kids aren't of a high stature, right? I mean, yeah, they're not tall either, but yeah, people don't give them a lot of mind. So this means this kid must have been annoying his parents. You know, dad, mom, dad, dad. Or maybe his mom's not there. Maybe his dad's not there. Maybe he's on his own. He's annoying his uncle. Hey, hey, uncle, 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 mom gave me, gave me some food. Maybe I could go give it to Jesus so everyone could eat. Oh, be quiet. That's not going to happen. Just shh, shh, go back. Finally, he must have annoyed him. Whatever, go do it. And I'm sure the first disciple didn't listen to him, right? I mean, you imagine a little kid coming up to you. When you're looking around, surrounded by like 20,000 people or 15,000 people, a little kid coming up to you saying, oh, I got my lunch for food if everybody wants to eat. I mean, how many people would have just scoffed at him? I'm like, get out of here. What are you talking about? I feel like Andrew only bought him just because he was probably pestering him, right? I, I just imagine a little boy not being quiet and Andrew being like, oh, fine. Come on, let's go see Jesus your lunch come on but this little boy just he didn't know how it was going to work right he didn't know how jesus was going to do it he didn't know what the ins and outs were going to be but he embraced that and still moved forward and i think that's what we got to do we got to sometimes practice embracing skepticism which i which allows us to let go of knowing how god does the impossible which can end, end us from having needless debates about the right formula or how all these miracles that we read Jesus would have done would have happened. We can get lost in just what the miracle is a little bit. 
We can end the debates in our minds that we come up with of trying to figure out the formula to pray for healing. Because I know I did that after I went to Honduras and I saw God do something. I, I think, I don't know if I could find one of my old journals. I'm sure there's written in there what I prayed because I'm pretty sure I prayed the same thing for everyone else that I ever prayed for for like a couple months after, right? I had the formula now. Got it. Yes, I just got to say this. I'm going to start this healing ministry. Yes, here we go, Jesus. But maybe we can let go of trying to have the formula. Maybe we'll just be captivated that maybe as a little kid in Honduras when I prayed for that person, God intervened. Not because I had magic words or I was a good person, but just because God is God and he wanted to move that day. And then also we can get to a point where I remember uh, with my dad's cancer story, eventually he had to do radiation treatment. Uh, which isn't fun if anyone's ever done that. Uh, and he had to, it was funny too, when he did it one time, he had to get locked away so we couldn't see him for a weekend. And if we went to see him, they had like this lead, like little door thing that stopped you so you could, he was radioactive apparently. Uh, but what's so interesting about this is he did a cu couple of these and after he did like, you know, the tr first set of treatment plans, he went around Christmas time to get checked and guess what? The cancer was gone. My dad's maybe had scares, but he's never had cancer come back again since that point. Now, I embrace that as God healing. Now, I remember I had someone once tell me, but was it God? Because it was the medicine, you know, it wasn't supernatural. But if we can let go and let God be God, maybe we can welcome whatever the healing is. Because you know what? God's healed people supernaturally. I have seen it. I can attest to it. You can hear stories of people having their life changed when they come to Christ. And it's amazing. But then you hear stories of God doing it a different way where someone goes on a journey, they see counselors, psychologists, they go to doctors, and eventually they find this medication that just makes their lives a hundred times better. Both are God's healing. And when we embrace skepticism, like this little boy we can celebrate both of those. We can let go of knowing how God does the impossible. We can let go of making, no, God only does the impossible by using worldly things, which I think is, is wrong if we get to that point. Well, God's only going to heal through medication, through that kind of stuff. But I think we're wrong if we get to the other side and we say God only heals supernaturally. And we're telling people to throw out medication that might be benefiting them. God can heal both ways. It's God's job to do it. We just need to get out of the way. Let's stop figuring out how to know how he does everything. Let's be like this little boy and just offer our lunch. Because maybe when we do that, I think we realize the physical and the spiritual are intertwined. And I've kind of already talked about this with the spiritual healing and, uh, you know, a uh, a supernatural healing and a physical, like, you know, using stuff here kind of healing. The physical and spiritual are intertwined. We like to separate them. But when you really dive into who God is, they're all, everything that we're a part of, the physical and the spiritual, it's so intertwined. It's so interconnected. 
And I think when we embrace our skepticism, when we let go of knowing it, everything, we'll see that more and more. We'll see how intertwined they are. We'll see how sometimes we might pray for ages to have, you know, a good day and we've been going through a rut and then we go, go to work and someone just randomly shows up at work and says, oh, I wanted to bring you a chocolate slice and it's your favorite chocolate slice. Because you know what? The physical and spiritual are so interconnected. And that's okay. Because God moves throughout all those areas. And I think when we can embrace skepticism in this way, when we can be like the little boy, not care about the formula of how God does it, let go of knowing how God does the impossible, realize that the spiritual and physical is all intertwined, and just let go and come to God, Amazing things can happen. And when these things happen, we will trust God like never before in an age of skepticism. Because I don't think this age of skepticism that we're in is going away. I think the world is going to be skeptic of the church. Right or wrongly, uh, they're going to be skeptic. I think people are going to be skeptical of things. I think we as Christians are going to be skeptical. You know, I, I would hope that no one hears what I say here on a Sunday and then goes, all right, Matt said it, it must be true. No, you go and do your research, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. We need to embrace it instead of trying to push it aside. Because when we embrace it, we let go of things. We realize we can't know everything. We realize God does the impossible, and I might not know how. I might have prayed for healing once, and it worked, but then I prayed for healing for someone else who was dying, and they still died. And we'll let go of how, knowing how God does the impossible and be okay with that. Well, we realize that the physical and spiritual are so intertwined that it's insane. And then maybe when we realize that, we might talk to God throughout the day. Invite him into every moment. Invite them into moments when you're walking around at work. I know I do in chaplaincy. I don't talk out loud. Otherwise, everyone would think I'm crazy. But there's been so many times I've been walking to get a kid, and I'm like, God, just help me. I have no idea. I mean, there is some stuff kids have to deal with nowadays. Oh, my goodness. Like, couldn't do it. I have no idea. There's kids I've sat with that have gone through stuff, and people just in my, you know, doing church stuff, I have never been through anything remotely close to what they're going through. And I have no idea what to say. And in that moment, I know everything's so intertwined, I just ask God in my head to help me. And it's amazing. He does again and again and again. Heck, I even ask him when I'm a bit tired, because I get tired, if you can imagine that, uh, I love my coffee and stuff, but I can get tired pretty easy. And there's even been times I'm walking around the school and I'm about to go, you know, buy some lunch. And I'm like, God, just really, you know, help me when I buy this lunch. Maybe help me not to just pick a cake because I know that's only going to give me like 10 minutes of energy. Help me get the fruit or, you know, just I need help. I'm tired. I'm about to fall asleep here at the school. And then I go in and the ladies in tuck shop will just give me a big piece of watermelon for no reason. I love watermelon. Oh, it gives me energy. But that's how God works, right? 
We can't explain it. We can't figure it all out. It's okay to be skeptical sometimes. We need to more embrace that. Let go of trying to know it all. Let go of trying to know how God does the impossible. Is it just supernatural or is it physical? No, it's both. Because you know what? Physical and spiritual are intertwined. So let's just embrace that and let God be God. Then we'll be able to trust God like never before. No matter what's going on around us. So I just want to close in prayer. And then the band's going to come back up. And I think they're going to lead us in a song, maybe two. Uh, We'll see how Steve's feeling with the song or maybe two. I don't know. Uh, But let's just pray. God, I thank you so much for who you are. I pray that you can help us be like the little boy. Help us to embrace skepticism sometimes. Realize that we can't know everything, which will allow us to let go of knowing how you do the impossible, of trying to figure out the right formula and the right words to say all the time, and instead we'll just rely on your spirit, which is all around us. We'll rely on who you are, knowing that the physical and spiritual are so intertwined that they're almost one and the same. And we'll walk in that trusting you. We'll walk in that inviting you into every moment of our lives. Seeing you work miracles again and again. I pray that you give us confidence to trust you in an age where skepticism just seems to have so many people trapped and this doubtfulness where they pick apart everything, where nothing seems to be good or good enough or bad enough. I pray that you'll help us avoid that. You'll help us avoid getting trapped in that just by embracing it and moving with you through it. In your name, amen.